So welcome to another show. Uh, today's guest is Alex Buxeda, and he's a, a podcast host to Escaping Mediocrity. So welcome to today's show. Hello, Jivan. It's a pleasure. Pleasure's always mine. So we were speaking up there a couple of times, actually, about capitalism. And it's a word for me that's been sort of bastardized with some negative connotations, but you're a real advocate for capitalism. Can you explain to everyone why that is and what you feel the, the real benefits of capitalism actually are? I think I could attack this thought from multiple different perspectives. First of all, first of them, from a super utilitarian and empirical perspective, it is self-evident that Switzerland is a much more desirable country to live in than Somalia. And there's something behind the institutional arrangement of those two countries, which have done that be something which has led to what they are currently. There's a quote I love. I do I do not remember exactly by who it was. I think maybe it was by by ex prime minister from the UK while the sure. Second World War. I'm I'm Mid- sorry. Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, probably. And it's little else is required to carry a state to the highest degree of opulence from the lowest barbarism, but peace, easy taxes, and a tolerant and a, to- and a tolerable administration of justice. It's Adam Smith, actually. Sorry, it's not. It's an, an Adam another... Smith. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I think that the capitalism at the first thought, at the first sight, is uh, is not attractive, but the virtue of capitalism is hidden behind the apparent selfishness of what is advocated for when you advocate for the for a capitalistic system. Believing in a, in a, in capitalism is saying that there's some inherent features of the human psychology and about the about economics, which are deeply ingrained in psychology, which only lead to an alignment of interests between different people with different abilities and interests, when they can profit and be penalized by their own actions. If you do not assume all the profit from your actions, you will be incentivized to do not to not produce as much good as you could. And if you are penalized, and if you are not penalized, you will be incentivized to produce ex- in excess of what harms other people. So the, the way of maximizing the benefit and minimizing the harm you produce to other people is by internalizing both costs and benefits of what you are doing. And I'm not advocating for capitalism in a black or white sense, there's a lot of nuance. And for example, assuming that emitting carbon dioxide would be negative, which is something really debatable, but the, this example is great. We we could argue that carbon dioxide emissions are the paradigm of the, uh, the best example of a trade of the commons in which you benefit out of the commodity about, about how comfortable you are in your own car while the whole planet gets worsened by the emissions of carbon dioxide and this doesn't need to be the case it's just an example of a of of something which transcends this instance which is the tragedy of the commons if you are able to internalize the benefit and socialize the cost like banks historically have done by assuming a lot of a lot of risk and ask for the government of for a bailout in case they they get bankrupt but having been profiting for decades until until the the cycle of the economy emerges out of the giving loans to people who shouldn't be getting loans because the interest rates are artificially low so yeah i think that all the bad things 
in sociology can be explained for a misalignment of interests. Yeah. And capitalism aligns that in the best possible way I can think of. I liked your example with the Switzerland versus Somalia, because I think that really shows the, the benefits, of, as you say, capitalism, where you're providing free choice, you're providing a platform for those who work hard and can bring value to the workplace to be able to provide a booming economy for individuals with a, a, a good spread of wealth within that. But the other point that you made and touched on is that it can be seen that there's exploit, exploitation of those that are less fortunate or who can't compete, which then monopolizes those larger companies. And then there's also the issue of depleting Earth's resources. You mentioned carbon dioxide, and I know that's not necessarily depleting the Earth's resources, but it is having an impact on the Earth and its position. Do you feel that there could be a way to bring in to capitalism a resource-based addition, let's say, to ensure that we can also measure the impact on the earth, either from a resource perspective or from a, a degradation perspective as well. You are talking about the instances in which the market is not capable of internalizing the costs. Yeah, exactly. So the only costs we can measure are those that we are aware of and can physically measure. We then become aware of some of the costs and benefits that are much harder to measure. And then it's then more difficult to bring that into the overall equation for us to then make decisions on. So I put that question to you. Is it that we need to find a way to measure these things or do we need to just incorporate them without a physical number? Because everything comes down to numbers, doesn't it, at the end of the day? And if we can't put a number on something, maybe there's a way that we can still incorporate that information without necessarily being able to quantify it in a mathematical number, but we still understand the benefits and drawbacks. It's always about averages. If the average is good enough, that system works and it will keep providing prosperity for the people. For example, the tax laws are not perfect. They are not designed in a way in which the people who know the most about the tax laws pay as much as the people who know the least about them. And if the tax laws were perfect, the person who knows them the best would have no difference in how much they end up paying if they earn the same amount than the person who knows the least. And why is there a difference? Because the amount of competence on 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 driving the highway of regulation is profitable for the people who, who have the ability to drive that highway or to sail that boat. And, and so there's uh, an impossibility of making a perfect system which would not allow that distinction between the person who knows a lot about the tax system and the person who knows less, partially coming from the fact that it is convenient for politicians to be able to give grants to certain business collectives. But apart from that, I think that part of the reason why the people who know more about the tax system are able to pay less is not that they are profiting, they are making the lives of politicians better, but it comes from an inability of the politician to design a perfect system. It's both. It's it's a, a misalignment of interest on the part of the politician and an inability to design a, a proper, a good enough system. And the what emerges out of that 
is that the average person from society pays enough taxes so that the expenses are paid for. And that's what they are seeking for. That's the goal. There's no other goal. You do not care if there's some people who are not going to pay. Well, ultimately, if your system is good enough, that the distinction between the person who pays the most and the person who pays the least would not exist. But you, what you're seeking for is that the average person pays enough so that the expenses can be covered. Yeah. And that happens with absolutely everything. And the divergence between the two sides, the person who pays the most and the least, would be narrower the big, the higher your talent is in designing a proper system. And the tax system is just one example of any rule you can establish. If you say, if you put one rule, for example, this is a perfect example of the of Goodhart's law. When a measure becomes a target, it, it stops being, it ceases to be a good measure. And that's because in the moment you know the measure, if you are at the same level of intelligence as the other person designing the, the law, or, or the measure, you are going to be able to determine third way, third other ways of getting the measure without without satisfying the ultimate objective. Which, for example, this is quite popular among the artificial intelligence community. A misaligned super intelligence would ultimately exist if. We we only give the artificial intelligence a phrase. If you, you tell them, okay, make people smile. That seems quite benevolent, but there's ways of maximizing smiling without our interests, our, I don't know how to define this, this the abstraction of the human interests being satisfied. And that's the ultimate thing which we're trying to maximize. And the, the way an artificial intelligence could maximize smiling would be by putting electrodes into our brains. And if you say, okay, but no electrodes. Okay, so he, he could use some pills. Okay, so no pills. And you have to keep specifying things that that will ultimately... If you keep specifying things which cannot be done in order to achieve your the objective with less resources, you will end up specifying as much information as was re required to articulate the action. So it, it would be like a, a bureaucrat from the Soviet Union saying exactly how much every person in society has to pay. If you establish that complex enough tax system which no one can can overpower okay. by knowing more about it you will end up saying to each person how much they have to pay and that's yeah. not viable but what 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 countries do actually do is they will invite businesses or allow them to have certain tax benefits which will then mean that they can employ more people in that country which means that they have more employees that means that those employees are paying tax through PAYE it's tax at source. And as you said, if we have X number of people paying the average level of tax of this amount, we are going to cover our expenses. So I'm sure governments do look at that in some sort of roundabout way in order to, to take that into account. But there's always winners and losers, losers within a, a, a capitalist-based approach because the average Joe on the street is paying 20 30% tax. But there are some companies out there that are paying less than 1% tax. But in order to employ all of those people, Sometimes you have to provide incentives for those businesses because if not, they will move to another country, set their head offices up there, which means that all of those people then have no job. So I think it is quite a complicated um, um, position, really. And as you rightly said, and I think that's a really good example, if you are going to suggest to a computer to make a human being smile, you first have to 
allow them to make a decision. And then you have to specify things not to do or things to do in order to narrow their actionable steps, let's say. I think we do that as individuals as well. So on that basis, then, we talked about some of the positives of, of, of capitalism. What do you think some of the negatives are? Or um, I'll flip that slightly, how we can reduce some of the negatives in terms of impacts on the environment or maybe the the movement of resources from poorer countries to wealthier countries or as you alluded to earlier the destruction of some of those smaller countries to allow you to drive your mercedes in new york so but those claims are entirely false sorry Th those claims you just did are completely false okay so please expand rich countries are the driving the major the biggest driving factor in increasing the GDP of the poorest countries. The thing that makes poor countries stay poor is their authoritarian governments. There's a, a negative correlation between how prosperous a country is and, and the GDP of the country with which you commerce. The richer your country, the less you commerce with poorer countries, which is the claim by a lot of socialists that rich countries are able to live the way they do because they export all their all the residue to the poor countries, but the actual amount of trade between the richest and the poorest, the amount of trade between Switzerland and Somalia is extremely small. S Switzerland commerces much more with any other rich country than with Somalia. So it's not true that Switzerland profits out of the existence of Somalia. Somalia profits out of the existence of Switzerland and S Switzerland also from the existence of Somalia. But if Somalia was much richer, you would profit out of the existence of Somalia much more. It's it's a positive sum game. We are evolutionarily driven to fall into the belief that the economy is a zero sum game, and it's actually not. It's a positive sum game. There was a great quote. I um, let me see if I can rephrase it. It was positive sum games are an evolutionarily recent thing. The people attacking status are trying to destroy wealth no it was wealth creation is a evolutionarily recent positive sum game the people attacking wealth creation are normally seeking for status which is a zero sum game so they are playing a, an inferior game instead of noticing that there's better games to be playing and north korea is one of the best examples of people who are playing a wrong game and if you are playing a stupid game, you are going to get stupid outcomes. And Switzerland is playing a great game and they are getting great outcomes. And I would say that everyone should play the best possible game. And the game is determined by the rules established by society. And I think capitalism points in the right direction. But I think with capitalism, your earlier point, that, and I agree that rich companies generally do trade with other rich company, countries because there has, in order to transfer money you have to be able to provide value whether that's a service or a product i think what people are saying is and this is the argument that a lot of people do have is if you take nike for example yes they are making more money from other wealthy companies countries rather through the sale of their goods and employees etc but they also do have sweatshops that make the products from the ground up so is that not an exportation well there's two sides isn't there one is that you could see it as an exportation 
because they are being underpaid for that for their services but you could also look at it in the way that if they weren't being used by nike they would be in an even increased position of poverty so exactly. it's, it's where do you draw that line between the two there's no line I, I would say that if you think of this for example i live in spain and spain is a considerably poorer country than switzerland but if a, a Swiss, if a Swiss company comes to Spain and hires me, I would be amazed by that. If I get a salary which is halfway between Spain and Switzerland, that would be amazing for me. I would be the first person this desiring that salary. It's amazing. I would be getting paid like 1,500 euros here in Spain, which is a super small salary compared to any other European countries. But I would be paying, I would be getting paid 6,000 euros in Switzerland, which is super high. But if they get a halfway thing of 4,000 euros, I would be perfectly happy with that. And that's exactly what happens when Western companies go to Bangladesh and they offer their their halfway salaries. They are closer to the local salary, but they are higher than the local salary. Yeah. And there's added benefits to to working to working conditions that are not exclusively about salary. Maybe you get the same salary, but you are getting it on in a condition which is considerably better you have better connections better contacts than that of the local community so you're more interested in in working in the sweatshop from the us which has been established in in your next to your house than in the sweatshop of your local guy who doesn't have any contacts with western people yeah and i think it's also the case and you sort of uh touched on it there is that in Switzerland, you're getting paid six, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand pounds a month, but your cost of living is also considerably higher. And most countries actually have, if you're in a country that has got um, a very uh, weak currency in terms of valuation, they also have a very low, a much lower cost of living as well, generally. And yes, you can argue that Switzerland and the United States have the highest level of disposable income, but they also have things that are more expensive as well. So do you think that there's a a relative threshold between those more wealthy and poorer countries in terms of how much they need to earn to be able to still sustain their lifestyle. I think there's two errors there in your in your arguing. First, first of all, the, there's a difference in how much life costs in Switzerland uh, in comparison to any other country. Switzerland is one of the wealthiest and most expensive countries to live in. But for example, I know this 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 statistic from because I'm from Spain. And the difference between salaries between Switzerland and Spain is around four or three times. That's how how many more times you get paid there than here. But the amount of times that you that it costs to live is two. So the difference between two and four times is the amount of money you get and which would be saved by you if you maintain the same level. If you live at the same level of comfortableness, you would save considerably more. That's the, the first point which I would like to clarify if if you maybe you weren't arguing against that, maybe, but I think that's something we have to state. The fact that in Somalia the cost of living is super low doesn't mean that you can save a lot. Only if you have a, a Western salary, you could save a lot. And then there's a an error in your argument in relation to the correlation and causation between low value of a currency and the low cost of living. When a currency gets lower, the cost of living lowers temporarily because the people do not adapt to the level of inflation. But if the level, if the cost of the, if the price of the currency stays stable for a long time, the economy adapts to that level 
So the amount of euros or let's say whatever currency you want to use, if, if the amount of euros stays stable for a long time, the cost of living will stabilize and it doesn't matter really what number you're paying with. It only matters the value behind the currency, not the number of euros that you're paying with. That's a fallacy, a Keynesian fallacy, which points towards wrong economic theory. You, no one cares about how many euros you're paying me. I only care about how many things I can pay with those. Yeah, euros. yeah, the value. Yeah, yeah. It's the, the, the purchasing power of the currency is what I meant. Not, not even that. It's I don't care about how much in, in relation what determines how cheap living in a re region is is not how how worthy each unit is it's the relative deflation of the currency and the speed at which the the economy adapts to, adapts to that reduction if if the currency has doubled in the amount of euros you have to pay with in order to pay for one kilo of rice, let's say you used to pay one and then and now you have to pay two because there has been a hundred percent of inflation. The speed at which people realize that one euro is half as valuable as it used to be is not instant. It's not in instantaneous. So there's a ripple effect across the economy in which everyone starts noticing that the euro is less valuable, but the people who get capital first, and those are the banks, coincidentally, get the profit out of being able to have cheap euros and give them to people who still believe that euros are more valuable. And the, uh, the last person who, who gets those cheap euros is a person who gets the most damage out of inflation. And that's typically the poor people. And things with, with currency though, there is there can be benefits for less wealthy countries to actually devalue their currency as well from an exporting perspective. No. It has been done in South American countries, China did it before as well to allow for when they weaken their currency allows for because most currencies are pegged to the dollar. In fact, dollar is the, the universal currency. If you have a weaker currency in your country, it allows for, let's say, the United States to buy more of that product. And it's cheaper to me. So. They do, they no, do, they do, do that. They do devalue their currency for that reason. They make exports more favorable. Like if you're an importing country, you want a higher but for global trade, you want a higher value on your currency to purchase more. Whereas if you're an export economy, you want a lower value relative to that other currency. No. Typically. Those effects of superior amount of selling while you are inflating your currency only occur as long as people haven't realized the real value of the currency. If people already had discounted the inflation generated by you by printing more money, the impact of more sales would be eliminated because the superior amount of sales that you can have and you actually have while deflating while inflating your your currency comes from a reduction in the amount of value that your citizens are getting from the selling of their products now the euro is equal 100 euros is equal to an iphone let's say and if you inflate it so 200 euros is the fair price for a uh, iPhone, but people from the US are able to 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 exchange a hundred dollars for two hundred euros, and people here are still producing iPhones at a hundred euros per iPhone, and now the people from the US are able to pay for two iPhones with the price previous to the inflation. The selling of iPhones will be making the local people extremely poor because they are assuming 
they are not realizing that they are assuming a much higher cost than they should for the income that they are getting because they are getting paid something which is much less valuable. And they are not still realizing it. Well, that's a knock-on effect of the initial change that happened. And that's the thing making a apparent increase in the sales at the exports. So that moves us on to, I think, globalization or decentralization, because we're talking about trading across boundaries. What are your thoughts on globalization? Should we continue on a, a globalization perspective or should we start to decentralize? I think so. I think globalization is not positive in all the terms. There's always, there's almost always nuance. There's almost nothing you can say in an absolute term, like not killing, not even killing is always wrong. Killing Osama Bin Laden could be argued to be positive and killing a lot of other people could be argued to be positive. So maybe it's not always positive, but the general thing is that globalization is great. It allows people or countries or regions who have a comparative advantage to produce that with which in which they are the best or not even the best two countries and can trade even if one of them is better at doing everything because the country who's worse will will have lower life living standards but they will be able to allow the one who's the best do the thing they are the best in and and then exchange that thing in which they are the second the, the thing that they are the second best at they, they can purchase that from the one who's worst at everything and both of them get benefited from it and so at a global scale getting having a uh, an, an international dialogue in which ideas are able to move across frontiers and not only front not only ideas but but products and and services that allows for the realization of you are more valuable alive for me than dead. If you are producing things which are valuable to me and to, my, and to sustaining my lifestyle, I will want to maintain a level of good relationship with you. Commerce is the originator of, of civility. If goods do not cross borders, soldiers will. And that has been proven across history in all the instances. So globalization gives an opportunity to sell your products more more widely and it also increase, increases competition. So some of the similar benefits really to, to capitalism in that in that respect. But is there are there some drawbacks in terms of Euro, uh, Europe area, for example, or the United States, where you have a lot of bureaucracy, where if you want to change rules within a smaller area you have to go through layers and see how that affects the wider the wider scale. Do you think that's a disadvantage in itself? The fact that there's a lot of bureaucracy in Europe? No, so so let's for, say, for example, the United States is made up of 50, country, uh, 50 states, and obviously there's rules and regulations that are governed across the United States, but also within each state. And the United States is probably a bad example because they have got their own sort of rules within each state. But if you want to change something, and this is where, you know, we could look at other areas. If you want to change something, I mean, here in the UK, for example, if people want to change something, it has to get escalated up to the, the, the wider government to make those decisions based on what's best for the overall country as opposed to those individual areas. 
So, yes, you can see the advantage of that, but is there also a disadvantage equated with that in the respect of from the local area perspective? Because they say, well, we need to fix this particular road for X, Y, and Z reasons, but because of the resources available and because of those people who are making the decisions, we are then affected. So could there be a way that we could still have globalization and some centralization but also to compartmentalize some of those smaller areas so we have some decentralization as well yeah there's a concept in the european union called subsidiarity which means that the smallest unit of government should be the one in charge of doing the thing if that's the one the smallest unit of governments or of government able to manage something should be the one in charge of doing it and what that advocates for is the fact that having the European Union managing your urban design would be a horrible thing to do. European bureaucrats know nothing about the distribution of parking slots in your residency. That's Those are not the people who should determine how the designs of your urban the urban design of your city not even the tax law they should be governing over things which are common and cannot be managed by local governments so and there are certainly some things for example if you decentralize far enough i believe i'm as i'm not an anarchist but i've i've yeah. heard a really potent and convincing arguments against for anarchy but i I've, I've still not been I, ha I still haven't been convinced so maybe it's a matter of being exposed to more anarchists like rothbard but yeah. there's the in if you take decentralization far enough you realize that the individual would not be able to defend itself against uh an entity like france which is a centralized government if if the Spanish government did not rule over Spain in a centralized manner, the benefit of invading smaller regions from Spain by France would be huge. And that's why there's a requirement to articulate a centralized of defense against a centralized offense. It would be super nice if everyone was decentralized and no one was able to articulate a nuclear attack. But as there's some people who are able to articulate the, the costliest of the attacks, which is a nuclear bomb, that's extremely capital expensive. No, almost no company, private companies can build a nuclear bomb, but some governments can. And if the government didn't exist, you wouldn't need any any centralized response to an offense by a government. But as it exists you have to have a response to it. And I believe that the market would not give a contundent, uh, solid enough response to a threat by a centralized entity. But So so a couple of things. One is, um, if we use a business as an example, where you've got the CEO who runs the whole company, but he then has a, a sales department, a marketing department, a financial side of things. You've got advertising uh, tax, all, I'm, I'm not going to list them all, but there's loads of different parts of a business. And they then delegate with their own vision in mind what they want from that particular department. And then it goes down through the layers, again, managers, and you've got sub-managers and 
team leaders, employees, and, and then the assistants. So that's, for me, in, in terms of how a country should operate, how it kind of works, but it doesn't work at the lower end of that well enough for me. Um, and that's a very broad statement, considering how different countries are. So that's the first thing. The second is what you said, and this is I think that's a really good point as well, is in relation to if you don't have governments, there's no threat of government from each other, if that makes sense. But is that not where things like NATO come in, where they try and keep all of those governments within one even larger centralised position? Or do you think that there's, or that doesn't solve that problem? I think NATO is analogous to mutual assured destruction with the invention of the nuclear bomb in the 1940s. It's an escalation of the consequences of a conflict between you and I to the point in which you do not consider worth it doing any minor threat to my integrity. But that makes that's equivalent to getting hired in a, a by a by a business owner instead of having your own business which fluctuates a lot in income. You can either have small fluctuations and a regular income or have a, sta a stable income and then a sudden movement. This is talked by Nassim Taleb on Antifragile. And I think the, this is what is going on. The fluctuations and the amount of war has been going on, ha has been decreasing considerably as the cost of a conflict between any country and NATO or the West has increased exponentially because now to offend one of them, you have to offend all of them. And no one wants to do that. But the offense will only come when you are when someone is able to articulate an offense to destroy all of them. And if that happens, it's the end for, for everyone. And well, maybe not the end for everyone, but what you, you know what I mean. The, the yeah. conflict will, will only start when the plausibility of winning where everyone on the opposite side is high enough. And that's the, the mechanics of the Cold War. That's why the Cold War didn't end in in a nuclear in a nuclear war in a hot war. And the, I think the same something's analogous to that. Maybe not entirely. There's some a lot of nuance there also. But it's so expensive to invade a single country from NATO for anyone that unless you are willing to fight one to one to the U.S. with the U.S. and everyone else. You're not going to invade the smaller guy, so you so you are. It's equivalent to being united to all. To, it's it's as if the rest of Europe was now states of the U.S. in military terms. It, it doesn't that pose its own own problems because then within NATO you then have a further hierarchy of those that are more powerful countries as opposed to those that aren't so powerful. So has that then got its own weakness, weaknesses as well because doesn't matter which way you look at things, there's always going to be weaknesses, isn't there? And there's always going to be hierarchies within hierarchies within hierarchies. So if you try and take away that conflict by creating a basket of countries that cooperate, and as you've rightly said, if one is threatened, then, you know, within that group, that is a force to be reckoned with in some, some respects. But then within that NATO position itself, it's a small guy like... Um, I don't know, let's let's say, 
I don't know, somewhere in, in Europe, for example, compared to the States, are they then subservient to, to the US in respect of power within that regime as well? I think so. There's uh, externalization of the cost of military that has been occurring since the creation of NATO on but the part of, of the European countries. Spain spends considerably less than 2% of their GDP on military. And the US spends around 4 or 6% of their GDP. And the GDP of the US is around 20 times that of Spain. So you can have a sense of the magnitude of the difference between the power of the military of Spain in comparison to that of the US. It's huge. Uh, a, a, a couple of orders of magnitude of difference. Yeah, or one of two, not one or two, not three, and that different, that huge difference. What is making is that U.S. taxpayers are paying the military for the for all the rest of the NATO countries because no one is willing to fight against the U.S. because it's a superpower. It's a, the biggest superpower in the world, and unless you're willing to fight with the uncles, Uncle Sam, you're not gonna be willing to fight with any of his friends. And so everyone is able to reduce their expenditure in military because one of the main reasons of why having a military for why having a military is the inhibition of potential threats. If you have a country next to you which is hostile to you and you get armed enough, the conflict which will not happen. I think that's one of the reasons why Switzerland did not get invaded during the Second World War. Yeah. It was so costly to the Axis to invade Switzerland that it simply didn't make sense. You have to make the cost of killing you higher than the one of letting you alive. And that's what happens with trade. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that there is comparisons between what we've talked about just now with, with the globalization, but also cap capitalism as well. What do you think there are ways to improve then the current situation? if there is any, in terms of either globalisation or capitalism or a combination of, of them both, because realistically, they are intertwined. There's a lot of Marxism in the current popular narrative. I think that feminism, a lot of the ecological narrative, uh, and even homosexual rights movement has a lot to do, the LGTB movement has a lot to do with Marxism. And that's entirely bullshit. You have to separate Marxism, homosexual rights, feminism, and, and ecological matters from Marxism. Can you, can, you explain, you that, can you explain for the listeners who aren't familiar with what Marxism is, in a summary, what that means? Okay, Marxism is... Karl uh, Marx was a, uh, an, a German philosopher from the 18th century, and he designed some bizarre and absurd theories about how the capitalist people who own the means of production, who own the, the companies and have the design of the business model, get profit out of the exploitation of the workers by paying them less than the value that they are adding to the capitalist. And that's true. They, they, they pay them less than the benefit they add to the business. But that doesn't mean that the capitalist is not adding any value. And this is where the Marxist view falls the image or the feature or the 
the existence of capitalistic people, the people who own the means of production, is entirely justified as long as they internalize the cost and the benefit. And they are doing the they are assuming the cost of their business model not succeeding. And by assuming all that risk with their capital, they are justifying superior profit than the equal share of the company would advocate for if we distributed the income the profits of the company according to labor. Labor is not a good way of allocating profits. The way of doing it has to have something to do with the amount in at stake and the amount of talent that you have. No one cares about how many hours you spend building a hat. I only care about how good that hat is. Yeah. And if you are going to sell it to me for much more because you are inefficient producing it, I'm sorry, but I do not want it. Yeah, it's like, um, I don't know if you've seen the Ben Shapiro conversation with that with a guy who works in a pencil factory. And he was saying, well, um, you know, I'm working in the pencil factory. Why do I not get the profit of the business? And Ben's like, well, I've opened the business. I've put all the capital into the business. I'm taking the risk. I'm getting suppliers. I'm getting the, the trade deals. I'm getting the contracts. And you, who just sits there making the pencil, and yes, you're working hard and, you know, it's long hours, et cetera. And you are, you know, essentially adding value to the business. But what's your risk versus my risk? I need to be remunerated for my risk. And I think this is some of the problem now with today's society. You, you, you know, you mentioned the, the feminism movement, et cetera. There seems to be a lack of foresight from, from some people in terms of how economics works or how we should act and not be a, a degenerative society, for example. Where do you think that's come from? Do you think it's come from Lack the school system or from social media? And I'm not going to say it is these things, but as examples, or is it from the mentality shift of individuals, lack of education? What What is it for you specifically that you think has made things as they are and the low quality of individuals coming through? I don't think it has anything to do with any specific reason you could point your finger to. It's something which transcends all the those things. It's the inherent tendency of the human mind to fall into black and white solutions to complex problems. I think that the complexity of the truth is inconvenient for both sides. It's incredibly easy and convenient for me to say, oh, you should vote Republicans because they have the solutions to everything and they are perfect. They everything they say is just genius and they, they do everything correctly. How how could how could it be that anyone could point the finger to anything they do which is wrong while their representation of the universe is perfect? And and then the Democrats would say the exact same thing about how stupid the Demo the, the Republicans are and how perfect their the representation of the universe is, and not realizing that maybe both sides have something right and something wrong, and maybe both of the sides have a lot of the things wrong makes dogmatism and the debilitation of the scientific method, which is ultimately the the best tool we have. That the scientific method drives all the improvement. If it wasn't for the trial and error and the humble positing of thesis, of statements about belief of, of what you believe to be the case in the universe, we wouldn't have progressed anything at all. And we have to realize our evolutionary environment in which black and white solutions to things were mostly right and appropriate and that's why we have developed certain psychological biases which with towards which we have to fight and the way of fighting against them is realizing that we are much more gullible than we would like to admit 
So what you're saying is we don't look at issues. We we sometimes look at things through rose speckled uh, glasses, saying, well, everything this person said is true, without looking at, as you said, the scientific methods and the results that have come from that. Yeah, I think so everything need... should be managed by a scientific method, and politics is not, or so, not always. So empirical evidence and logic versus emotion. Well, emotion, there's nothing apart from emotion. What leads a scientist to realize how good his thesis is, is emotion. If there were no emotions, he wouldn't have any feedback to realize what is correct. But I, I, I think I know what you're referring to. The limbic hijack that you get by seeing uh, a naked female or a, a big ass on Instagram is not the same signal of truth that you get from reading an, a scientific article. You get a different stimuli and you're still, you still get emotions in both of the cases, but the regions of the, your brain which are highlighted are different. And I would say that in the first case, it, they will point to mediocrity and not really something prosperous for the long term. And in the second term, realizing that the nuance in the argument and the fact that it is incredibly complex uh, of a subject to analyze and the, that they are arguments in all the sides that are seemingly pointing towards truth and you have to dissect them further in order to be able to take the good things of each part. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, you, you mentioned scientific methods there. Do you, what, what do you feel from, from as far as what we've talked about today? And I'll, I'll, I'll actually, I'll, I'll use an example here as well. So we talked earlier about capitalism and some of the benefits. And a benefit that I feel very strongly for capitalism and the current system is that we are allowed to fail. And we are allowed to fail fuck up essentially and start again i mean look at the silicon valley bank situation that's going on at the moment um if you weren't allowed to fail people wouldn't take risks and that's could, could you could you prove that through a scientific method for example so something that shows that failure has its benefits scientific methods are based on figures and and, and stats and logic with something such as that how would you how would you implement that? How would you measure it? Because certain things are very easy to measure. Oh, how high is this building? How many people live in the building? You know, what's the um, uh, how much energy is emitted? How many man hours went into building it? Um, how many resources were built uh, were were um, allocated? What's the lifespan of the the building? All of these basic things. But with something like that, the failure of of a Silicon Valley bank, how could we? Put values on the employees, the the value of their uh, their families. How would we be be able to put in the value of time to build at this business? The impact it's having on future generations. How much people have invested, the impacts on other firms that have invested capital with that business. Is there even a chance that we could do that, or is it just a case of we don't have the computing power to be able to do that at this point? We do have the computing power. And that has been proven in the market for for as long as the market has existed. And that's what happens when you allow prices to fluctuate freely. If an employee doesn't get paid enough in a company and for, for the risk he believes exists for how prone he would be to be kicked or or kicked out of the company if the company fails he will go to another company. You have to do a cost-benefit analysis of where it is more prone 
which company is more prone to failing. And if you do not do that, well, no problem. I do not do a cost-benefit analysis of what the odds of me having a car crash every day are. And who does it? Okay, the, the insurance companies do that. And the value that insurance companies add to society is incredible because they have a lot of knowledge about abstract about abstract tendencies or in society, which you could not predict at an individual level, but they are able to as I said, add, add, add a lot of value in that sense. And you started saying that that if you are too big to fail, that if 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 you are not allowed to fail, you will not assume risks. I think it's precisely the opposite way. If you are not allowed to fail, you will assume a lot of risk. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. You 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 are more likely to be risky if you have the option to fail. No, 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 no. Well, at a certain way, yes. If In the case of your parents, if your parents do not want you to fail and you're going to be castigated by them for failing, sure, you're going to assume much less cost, less risks. But if you're not allowed to fail in the sense of the government giving a implicit but credible promise of bailing you out in case you fail, you will assume the most risks possible as the banking system does. Because they know that a government, the government will not allow enough banks to be. So, yeah, I meant I meant from an individual individual perspective, where you start, you you have got two options, and I don't know why these two options, because there are unlimited other options. But you've got a job working at a fast food restaurant or or a basic office job. That's low risk because let's just assume that that business is is infinite and it's going to last forever you've got a nice basic salary there's there's no risk there on your part apart from being able to do the job you could on the flip side take a risk and start a business and you know have investors take loans out to try and build and provide value to the wider economy the risk is that you could go bankrupt that is a risk on your part because the the downside risk is a lot higher but the upside risk is also high if we were to look at employment as as being no downside risk and no upside risk versus starting a business bankruptcy versus multi-billionaire if you weren't allowed to start again under the capitalist system you would be less obliged to take that second risk of starting the business because if 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 we went bankrupt and then had to go to prison for 30 years Lots, a lot less people would actually start a business. Yeah, the incentives determine in a big part what people will end up doing. If you add more costs to something, people will do it less. And if you add more, if you add more benefit, people will do it more. If you subtract benefit, people will do it less. And if you subtract cost, people will do it more. And yeah. what happens with an implicit promise, and credible promise, of the government telling the banks that they will be bailed out if they fail? is that their costs are being reduced while their benefits are staying the same. So they assume a lot of a lot more risks because they're not going to pay for it, for the risk because the government will come and pay with tax dollars all the bad investments that they did. But while the bad investments were not having a downside, they will they were profiting and getting incredible bonuses, which is ridiculous. So yeah, I think I think you're right. You, you if you if the cost of what you're doing is higher, you will do it less. Because it's what we spoke, well, what you mentioned at the start, isn't it? That we try and measure the 
the, the, the cost of a benefit versus the cost of failure. But I think in this example with capitalism, your failure is not really punishable in the, the same way as the wider economy has been impacted, i.e. employees and uh, maybe bailouts, etc. And I think that's a good thing because it then allows us to continue to innovate and try new things. Because without that, I don't think that we would have the situation that we're that we're in now, essentially. Um, because the, the good thing is, is that we have freedom to act, we have freedom to move, and in some part, we have freedom of speech. And it's something we we've, we've spoken about. What what are your thoughts on that? Do you do you feel we still have freedom of speech, or do you think that that has been diminished or is being diminished currently? I think well it depends on the time frame you take, but if if you compare it with other other centuries, we have more free speech than than ever. If you compare it to other decades, maybe a bit less. But there's the biggest argument that you can build for anything is for free speech. It's uh, the ethos of my podcast, Escaping Mediocrity, is the the purpose of dialogue is to let ideas die instead of us. And that's precisely what free speech is for. If you allow dialogue to occur among people, what will occur is that the bad ideas will die because they cannot win against good ideas. And the the people who, who held those bad ideas will change their mind and will start inhabiting in their minds good ideas. That's the, the project I believe in. But if you do not believe natural selection to occur at the level of ideas, the person with the bad ideas will stay with it and will impose violence into people with good ideas. And not only that, but he will also impose violence against the people with bad ideas. So again, dialogue and commerce are more or less the same. In the one you're transacting economic goods and in the other one you're transacting ideas. If, if goods do not cross borders, soldiers will. And if ideas yeah. do not, soldiers will also. So the the solution to soldiers crossing your border and invading your country is for your country to be able to have dialogue and commerce freely and in a peaceful manner with the countries around you. So both and generating mutualistic interactions, symbiotic relationships in which everyone in the interaction benefits. But is that more freedom of ideas and freedom of exchange of information and a, a sort of a merit-based approach to your viewpoint as opposed to freedom of speech? Because freedom of speech, for me anyway, has got like a wide spectrum of being able to say what you think, being able to still be offensive, but without being obtuse and an idiot about it, if that makes sense. Because I think there's a fine line between being saying what you think i'm not saying that we should have any caps on speech but we do that socially we ourselves as social beings have our own barriers on freedom of speech so if you're if you're sat there and and, and everyone's let, let's say someone's getting married and the person who's getting married has invited everyone there to their wedding and she's you know in a white dress but she weighs 30 stone and someone shouts out you're a fat bitch Although that's freedom of speech, at ourselves as the market, the social beings in the room say, oh, you know, that, that that wasn't right. For me, that's okay. To have that social awareness to say what is right and wrong is okay. 
But what isn't okay is for we talked earlier about the the hierarchy and uh, the top down approach, etc. It's not okay that we are dictated what we can and can't say through language. You know, we can't say male and female now. We have to say not that, that I'm ever going to adhere to that binary, non-binary, she, he, they, whatever. That is taking away our ability to think and speech as opposed to the other, as I said, way is where as a group, like if we're we're with friends, me, you and five other people, we can say what we like because there's no one in that group that is going to be offended by what's been said. But if we widen that group, there might be people in there. But again, that's something that as a group we work, we work around and we know what and what is not acceptable. Can you shed any light on that? Yeah. The calling of fat bitch to uh to the girl who's getting married should be taken into account as the track record of the person who has done that stupid comment during the wedding. Whatever his track record is, I'm pretty sure it will not be fascinating. So that person has probably done a lot of other stupid comments in the past. So why are you <laughs> inviting him? It's and if true. he has and if he has not done other stupid comments previously, well, now we're talking about someone who randomly did something completely opposite to what you were expecting of him. And who can cover it himself against that? I yeah. cannot. It's uh, true. Because it's like, who's wrong? Is it the guy's fault that he's wrong for saying that? Has everyone else misjudged his character? And he's, he's you know, managed to pull the wool over the eyes. So there's loads of different things you can sub-questions that you can ask, can't you? Exactly. You you have to take into account the track record of people in order to invite them to your wedding. You're not going to invite the least civilized people you know of. Unless you're very uncivilized yourself in, in some respects, because you tend to, you know, the, the law of five people you hang around with and all that. Although I, I, I sort of disagree with that and to, to, to some extent, um, but I do believe that um, it does have an impact on you, who you who you hang around with. But if you spend more time alone, you become the average of yourself. Like solitude is a good thing, not not loneliness, because loneliness is where you want to be with people, but you can't because you know people don't find you interesting. Solitude is where you've withdrawn yourself. Because I know I can tell you're a, a guy who likes to read and research, a bit like a bit like me, where you know you've got an idea and you've got a question, you you know you work through it and you try to work things out and get the information and you think about it for for hours or weeks or days or whatever it's going to be. But there are other people who don't necessarily do that, and even if they were to hang around with you, they may be influenced by your behaviour, but they would never become you essentially. So I think there is some or some truth to it but also some untruths or, or falsities there and you talked about the unity of knowledge didn't you earlier so in that respect is there is there a unity of knowledge or does that mean something different to you well the, i think you we we left two two incredibly important topics without touching one of them was the, you, okay. the last thing you said about the difference between solitude and loneliness. I think solitude is monk mode. There's a great article I can share with you afterwards about it, which is that there's a lot of benefit out of going, like you like you mentioned, do, focusing in your craft and trying to improve the most you can in yourself without neglecting future interaction with people, but just for a while, focusing in what makes you improve. And maybe not forever, but for a while, you can do that and you improve yourself. 
and I've gone through certain periods in which I've done that, maybe not on a weekly basis, but on a daily basis. Maybe there's some days in which I, I don't meet anyone and there's and then there's a few consecutive days in which I have a lot of social life. So 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 yeah, the thing that those fluctuations in in the amount of socialization allows you to to get into deeper waters than you would if you are constantly interacting with people. You you can separate yourself more from the average when you do not interact with the average as much. But doing that makes forces you to to interact with less people, which is which has a a, a mental cost, which is super expensive if you delay that enough. And then going back to the second thing that we left, the previous one about is feminism and its relationship with Marxism. There's an inherent tendency in humans to seek for inconditionality, and feminism hijacks the seeking of inconditionality in humans by not conditioning, by not questioning the statements that feminists posit, like females should always earn the same as males, no matter what the condition is, and adhering yourself to that statement without conditions, without looking at the distribution of willingness to us to aspire for status among males or females, the willingness to to work more hours, the willingness to to assume more risk in a business from a business perspective, the distribution of IQ, which is why they're in males, the, the distribution of aggressiveness, the, the tolerance for risk. If you do not look at all those things because you do only want to do good for the collective movement, which is assuming as a dogma that whatever is said by the by the biggest and the loudest number of people is the correct thing, you are saying something similar to what you say when you recycle. When you recycle and you do not have to because you are not forced by the government, you are pe letting people know that you are a reliable person. You're not here for, you're not doing what you're doing for the short-term benefit. If you were, you wouldn't recycle. You would throw everything to the same, to the same bin, the same bin in the, in the street instead of separating the plastic from the, from the, from a crystal and, and all those things. So that's where, where I'm going, that the inherent tendency, the evolutionary tendency that we have to seek for unconditionality is the thing being hijacked in all these movements and also in Marxism. And if you separate what Marxism is from feminism, you realize that there's a lot of good things in feminism, but the the effect of, and I think this also happened during the pandemic, during the COVID pandemic, there were some things that we should, we had to accept as dogma without questioning the grand narrative, without questioning any single detail about the narrative, because the opposite would be saying that you are seeking for truth and your inconditionality is not put in the centralized entity which is ruling over the whatever should be done but on truth if yeah. you put if you put your highest if you if at the top of your hierarchy is truth or the scientific method you will not pay respect to anyone else unconditionally you are seeking for truth and i think truth is truth should be seeked no matter the consequences truth is always better than the consequences. It doesn't matter. If truth requires going through a period of pain because people are believing things which are wrong, seeking for truth is the thing that should be done. But there, there's also nuance here. You shouldn't t tell the truth to a robber. If, if they are going to robber you and they, they, they say, okay, do you have 500 euros in your pocket? If you do, I'm going to rob you. Well, maybe in that case, as 
truth in this is, is in the spectrum of violence. If you are anticipating a superior level of violence being directed towards you, you are legitimized to use a, a smaller one and doing that and generating a lie in that moment saying, no, I do not have 500 euros in my pocket, even if you do, would be the less violent way of getting away from that situation. So yeah, yes, I, mean... I think that the feminism movement what does is train people in assuming things as a dogma in an unconditional manner so that farther down the stream when the really important things come into action which are the redistribution of wealth and the expropriation of private property those are the two things that that the people that the smartest people at the feminist movement are thinking of yeah it's the the truth Allowing, not allowing people to question smaller and re less relevant things like whether females should be paid more or less, which is incredibly relevant, allows for further more relevant things to be implemented at a societal level. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I heard, uh, I don't know if it was last year or maybe the year before, the England football team, the, the women's team requested that they were paid the same as the males team. Now, that can't be the case because men's football is watched more. You know, they have, they're bringing more revenue in. If you, And I know that, you know, if, even if you were to take out revenue because it's international football, they are more valuable as a team and as individuals than the female team. So if the females are being paid the same as the males, the females are being paid more for their service, their acts of service. So that doesn't make sense. If they were paid the same level that they are currently, in some respects, that is being paid the same for what they, the value that they bring to the marketplace and the value that they bring to, um, you know, the 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 the, the globe on on the whole in in some respects. And and the other issue I've got with with the feminism side is they're like, well, we need we don't need men, you know, we can do everything ourselves. But everything that's around is built and designed. Most of it is built and designed by men and. And things like that so you can't they can't necessarily say that and yes you know physically we are superior in that respect so even if we take that aside there are other things that you know men have, have done as well that, that you know women haven't done up until this point i'm not saying that they can't do that but you know we have to give credit where it's where it where it's true uh really um but to, to steal to steal man their their case they would argue that the fact that not so many things has have been done previously in the history of humanity by females is an, an inner, uh, the patriarchy which has oppressed females and that hasn't allowed them to do things, and that partially is true. There there has been some inhabilitation of females to do things, from which they have gotten rid in a major way recently, and that allows them to do more things. So, uh, but there's still a huge difference in the more gender egalitarian countries like the Nordic countries, Norway, Sweden, and Finland, and Denmark, the differences in the things that people want to do as, as a career are have never been bigger. F females want to do traditionally female thing and, and males want to do traditionally male thing, even if their governments has have been spending absurd amount of money in relationship to their huge GDPs, in trying to indoctrinate people into gender neutral, into a, into a neutral gender neutral society. Yeah, it's uh, the whole Jordan Peterson thing, isn't it, with the equality of outcome versus equality of of choice, really. Um, but 
I heard a, st a statement the other day, actually, and, you know, you can talk about patriarchy and the oppression of women, et cetera, over the past, which, OK, there's, there's some there's some credence to that. But also look at where women are now. In some respects, women have more rights than, than men do. But coming on to the statement I heard the other day, so something along the lines of 80 percent of people in, in the United States prison. And again, these figures may, may be slightly wrong, but 80 percent of people in prison are from single parent households but like 95 percent of those are from female only households and not from male only households because for me the reason the patriarchy is at work is because men have a, a level of assertiveness and dominance that females don't tend to have and for, for a lot of men they don't listen to women. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but they just have a feeling that, like, I don't trust a woman as much as I do a man, which, you know, whether it's right or wrong or not, that's just their perception. And we have to incorporate in that into the equation, as you mentioned, scientific methods. Like the risk of divorce for men, for example, is high, which then means, that do we need to earn more? So there's a lot of lot of variables. And, you know, we've, we've gone into scientific methods it's it's difficult to to try and value everything and and actually measure everything but it can it can be done but i want to i want to move on to unity of knowledge because i know you're very uh, passionate about this so if you can explain what that is and how the transcendent part applies okay there's a hierarchy of knowledge that we have in our society the there's there's been millions of people exploring the world up to now and they've come to the conclusion that at the bottom of our hierarchy is mathematics that's the closest to the fundamental nature of reality and then out of that emerges physics which is something that is a bit abstracted from the most fundamental thing we know of which is the nature the laws of nature which are expressed in mathematical formulas and then physics allows you to understand how matter interacts with itself and how that th those things emerge out of the formulas of the laws of nature, which are understood in a, in the best way by mathematicians. But then out of that emerges chemistry, which is the interaction of matter with itself in another emergent aspect, which is the at at a at a molecular level, not only at a fundamental quark level. So it's something emergent out of the, the quarks and the protons. It's the, the compounds. That's chemistry. And then out of chemistry emerges biology, which is the emergence out of compounds of biological entities which interact with themselves in a more complex way than you would, would be predicted by the interaction of molecules and, and compounds. And then out of biological interactions emerges sociology, and the, the way we economics, psychology, and social sciences, all those things emerge out of the biological realm. And you and you realize that there's a hierarchy in which there's threads of logic which attack which ex exist at all the levels. For example, natural selection. That doesn't only occur at the level of biology and social sciences, because idea only ideas which can spread like me, like the, the selfish gene by Richard Dawkins, that, that book. He, he talked there about this, uh, about memes about and about how ideas which are good at, at reproducing themselves are, are the ones who exist in a bi bigger proportion. The same thing occurs at the level of asteroids, as I mentioned to you before. The asteroids which cannot 
be independent because in collision with other ones get destroyed do not are, are not there anymore at, so there's some process of natural selection at all the levels of the hierarchy maybe not at the level of mathematics i still have to see an example in which natural selection has been applied to mathematics i do not know of laws of nature which have been discovered and then because another one is better the previous one has been discarded not at the level of belief in the of humans it's not as if we believe that newtonian physics was good and then we believed that Einsteinian physics was the correct thing, and then quantum physics. The true state of reality has not changed. So at the level of mathematics, nothing nothing has changed. Everything that has changed in our theories is at the level of social sciences. We The thing is that we believe of, the, the, the way we represent reality is at the level of, of hominids thinking. It's not at the level of quarks. So quarks haven't changed their nature for ages. But... Okay, so so let me just get this straight. So it's it's the 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 knowledge that uh, that transcends topic areas essentially. So for me, I, the first thing I thought of was the was was quantum physics essentially, where you get the particle slits experiment, particle entanglement, and all these sorts of things. For me, in some respects, that shows because you know we are made up of of, of particles that all. Uh, have energy and they vibrate and they are the things that went through this particle slits experiment and we as individuals create things so you talked earlier didn't you about how you know as individuals we create things of value we build them and we obviously sell them on if they are uh, of good value we also talked about how we design things sometimes that pervert produce waste product i think you mentioned carbon dioxide earlier we as individuals don't make things perfectly but if we look at and this is just your average job on the street they look at their mobile phone they look at a book they look at their car they look at their house and say well that was designed because it's pretty obvious that that was designed because it's got functionality it's got practicality and you can see an inherent design could that that not then not be the case on the quantum physics front where that then moves into spirituality, etc., and says, well, if we can observe these particles and when we observe them, they change behavior, um, there's particle entanglement and the, the universe in itself has inherent design. So a car has got, or a human, let's say, has got a circulatory system, it's got a brain with different compartments, it's got ears for hearing, eyes for seeing, it's got limbs, etc. Could the universe not be the same thing where it's designed in a way that it has orbits, it has um, trees, it has the the solar system, the the sun, DNA, which is essentially a code. Do you feel that your point on the 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 the, the knowledge pyramid can go as high up as that, or do you think that that is out of the remit of, of your point? There's emergence of new layers of complexity out of the ones below. Okay. Uh, not realizing this makes you fall into errors in your analysis. So you should take into account that there's level different levels. And when you believe something wrong, when you're thinking of something in a wrong way, like, like uh, an example you just gave, that what you should do is go farther back in the emergence of that thing. For example, uh, Richard Dawkins talked about this in The Blind Watchmaker. If 
if you find a, a watch in the middle of the street or a book, as you mentioned, you posit that there's a mind behind it. Someone had to create it that couldn't have assembled itself randomly. The odds of that happening is minuscule. Okay, but that's the wrong question the, because that's the outcome of a, of an entity, of, of, a, of a human. Then the same thing could be said about its physics. Our physics and a book are not different fundamentally. They are just an outcome of our biology. We are entities which produce physics and books, and neither of those could be explained without our existence. So what I'm saying is that saying that the book requires an entity behind it creating it is wrong. It's not wrong in itself, but it's partially wrong because you have to... The question is not that the book could not have emerged out of anything. It could, and it has, because the human came from something else. And that thing was a, a, pri a, a less, a previously, a previous primate, which came from something else. And then you can see the tree of life. It's a beautiful illustration of all the branches of, of living beings. We all have a common ancestor, which was a bacteria. And it, it's just so beautiful. Biologists has, have done a great work in expressing all the tree of life, how it comes from a common ancestor. So something similar could should occur at the level of the book. If you're saying, okay, how did that this last, last thing that emerged out of the last branch of life, how, how, does this, how did this thing appear? That's the wrong question. You cannot say... Well, that, that's the right question. I'm sorry. The, the, the wrong question would be, this thing requires a mind in the same way that the universe requires a mind. Because what you are saying is that the book requires a mind, and surely it does. There's a human behind it which has a mind. But the human emerged out of something which didn't have a mind in the sense that a human does. And that thing emerged out of something which had a mind which wasn't as that as the one of that thing. And if you go far back enough, you realize that there's a bacteria. And how did the bacteria exist? Well, there was there were some proteins folding randomly on, on some on some underwater chambers that's speculated to be the origin of life. And then you could go even farther back and say, how were the conditions for the emergence of life appear? And and then you could say that the contingent problem, the contingency problem in philosophy, what's the thing that made the universe exist at all? Well, I don't have any answers but, for that. But was it random though? Because as you said with the book, everything, it can't just appear randomly. It has to have a creation. So if it was the the the, the bacteria in the water, etc., randomness has been described as our inability to perceive how it works basically we haven't realized the pattern yet so maybe that's the case because there are things that have happened in the past hundreds of years ago that we believe that to be random but now we know the, the, how it works essentially and I, I don't remember who the mathematician was but he said if you could tell me the speed uh, the velocity of how you're going to break a, a, a set of snooker balls, I could predict exactly where those balls would land. But because we don't have the, commut the, the the computation in our own mind to be able to do it, and we can use it through computer programming, you you would be able to to find out exactly where those balls would land, and it wouldn't be chance essentially. It wouldn't be random. Randomness is there's there's no such thing, and that's that's what he said. So again, it's not I'm not saying here saying to say anything's right or wrong that's the whole point of this conversation and that's where philosophy 
that comes in as well. It's your ability to be able to think and try and produce ideas. And as you said, it's an idea from Mr. Smith versus an idea of Mr. Jones. And it's which one of those at the end is, is the correct idea. Yeah, we're going now to the debate of free will, whether it exists or not. And I have some strong opinions about this. I believe in the inexistence of free will. Uh, I think there's not an a bit of free will in us. Free will is not even a coherent concept anyone could define. In what in what sense? The the most rigorous definition of free will I can think of would be not to not be subjected to cause and effect in a way that allows you to do things apart from previous to the previous state of the universe. See, so I I think that because this is determinism versus free will argument, isn't it? So are, are all our actions determined? Were we created, you know, for something, etc.? And there's a free will argument. You know, we can make ourselves who we are. I believe there's an element of both because our genetic structure, our DNA, is determined. You know, you were you didn't choose with the family you were born into. That's deterministic, and all these other bits: your eye color, your hair, etc. And what our skill set and gifts are. But along that process. I feel there is some free will. So the people who have died from taking heroin, they weren't, I don't believe, designed to take heroin. But along their path, they had choices that they've made. And if you have, let's say, choices A and B, and over time you make the correct choice, let's say A is the right choice and B is the wrong choice. And over time you make a series of correct choices, you'll be in a very good position in 10, 15 years' time. But if you make a series of bad choices, oh, I'm going to go out to drink tonight. Oh, okay, I'm going to make friends with this person. Oh, I'm actually going to quit my job. Oh, I'm going to start gambling. Um, I'm going to start drinking. I'm going to start taking cocaine, crack cocaine, heroin. And you've made that that, that whole series of bad decisions. That I don't think that, that was what you were designed to do, but you then get an element of choice within there as well, I think. The fact that you can choose doesn't prove free will. For example, th think of it this way. There's a great example that I learned from Sam Harris. He he said he did in, in one of his podcasts, he talked about an example. It was he, he was asking the, the audience, think of a random city. You can take as long as you want. And then the other person says a, a city. Let, let, yeah. Let's do this experiment. Okay. okay. So, Yvonne, Tell me a city. You can take as long as you want, but okay. obviously for because of time constraints, maybe you, we couldn't take as long as we could you wanted. But you, in principle, you have an infinite amount of time disposable to you. That now you can choose one. But I have an infinite amount of time, but I have a finite amount of cities because there's only the cities that we have inherently. But I'll, I'll, I'll answer anyway. Let's just say Adelaide. Okay. So before you chose that, you had a set of prospect a list of prospective cities you could think of and i'm yeah. sure los angeles is a city you know of yeah and it maybe didn't come to your mind did it no okay but you know that city yeah absolutely been there okay so <laughs> so what freedom is it in you to choose los angeles if it didn't even come to your mind in that moment no i i, I get exactly where you're coming from and I've i've discussed this before with someone it's like the ideas that we get, do are we creating those ideas or are we picking up those ideas as an antenna? So I think I'm don't I'm not putting words in your mouth. But so are you are you saying that we didn't have a choice to pick Los Angeles because whatever we came in, into our head, we just went with? 
Yeah, exactly. What came to your mind, the, the conditions on which you made the decision weren't chosen by you. You simply chose at the conscious level, but at the subconscious level, there were thousands of decisions made without your conscious awareness of it. And what we call free will to is the decision made at a, at a conscious level. So it doesn't make sense to say that free will exists when even the conditions or the desire to even make a decision was determined at a subconscious level. You chose, but you didn't choose to choose. No, so, okay, so I, with that example, the, the pick a country, I get it, because you're not, you know, sort of picking it. It's something that just comes into your head and you say, okay, well, this is the answer based on, as you said, all that computation of subconscious mind. But going back to my example of a guy who dies of a heroin, becoming a heroin addict, they are conscious decisions that he's made to go to the bank account, take some money out, go. And he has so much time between going to the bank, to ringing up the drug dealer, going to see the drug dealer, to to preparing the heroin, to putting it in. He has, at each one of those, um, uh, let's say, stops at the bus stop along the journey, he has those thoughts in his mind of, you shouldn't be doing this, or yeah, it'll be fun. And he's had that decision so many times, and it's a conscious decision he then makes based on those two arguments. So the two the two um, cities that came to mind when you asked which cities was where I live, and then I thought that's too obvious. Pick, give me another one, and it gave me one the other end of the world, which is Adelaide, because I asked my question. Well, give me another one. So you can, to some extent, have some level of conscious control over your subconscious mind and. This has been talked about with athletes and uh, um, many other people who can use their mind to its full potential. So I, I think there is some level of free will. Maybe there's a a a, uh, a variance in our definition of what that is. So maybe that's the issue. But I still I do think that we have some choice in our our actions. No, the, the example I gave you about the choosing of one city is analogous to the choosing of the the robbery the, the robber in every step of the of the travel to the to the place in which he committed the robbery in the bank it is incredibly analogous that person there was a moment in which he was five and he wasn't culpable for what he will end up doing and something in his environment and his in his genes a mixture between his genes which he didn't choose and his environment which he didn't choose either will lead himself to be the robber who will commit the robbery. So you cannot say that he was free in choosing that. But then but then if everyone if that's the case then is everyone in prison should they be, be released because they didn't mean to do it? No 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 that that would be like saying that a car which has malfunctioning uh, malfunctioning the the brakes of the car which are mal malfunctioning that car shouldn't be allowed to move freely in the street because it cannot coexist with other cars. It's not compatible. The existence of a car with malfunctioning brakes and of other cars which have functioning brakes is not compatible. So that car should stay in the in the garage for as long as the brakes stay without functioning. The same thing occurs at the level of humans. Humans who are not able to coexist with other humans should stay parked in a place until they are re rehabilitated. 
But what free will allows you to realize is that there's no reason why we should be hating people who committed errors in their lives, be it a rape, be it a, uh, an assassin, a robber. The, the thing that you have, you develop some kind of compassion in which you only focus in improving the, the, the life of people. You realize that, okay, let's try to improve the, the life of potential people who will be killed in the future. Let's try to reduce the amount of people who are killed. So less people are killed. And how do we do that? Okay, people who killed before should now not be able to access people who are potentially going to be killed. And the, that allows you to interfere with the cause and effect of the universe in a way that minimizes suffering and maximizes well-being without okay. acknowledging the existence of free will. Okay, so you've got your own podcast, um, Escaping Mediocrity, and obviously listeners, get get involved, give it a go. Um, so, so you're saying that you didn't have the free choice to make that podcast. Exactly. So, so the idea was given to you, and who was that given to you by? Do you believe in the creator, a God? Take religion out of it, because I think that's a separate conversation. I think religion and the existence of some creator, like a universal being, is separate. Because religion is like, you get the Abraham religion, it's based on you should act in such a way, and this is the story. Whereas, as you rightly said, the consilience if that's the right word the unity of knowledge there's a sometimes you can understand things without necessarily having the scientific method i think sometimes um so so yeah do you feel that that was something that was determined by a, a being outside your control i think saying that there's a, an entity which created the universe would be moving one turtle down but there's turtles all the way down so I prefer eliminating one turtle and just uh, acknowledging my ignorance of how the universe emerged. And I consider nature to not be justified in itself as the scientific method. You can you can see that the scientific method works, but you do not know how it why it works. You you know why some headphones work, but you do not know why the method proving that the headphones work itself works. Okay. Why is trial and error something that works? Why are the physical constants of the universe the ones which are the the natural nature defined in the most ample way possible is the thing that exists and its existence should be assumed because there's no alternative. How, how are you going to do anything else? So I do not know how the universe started and that's where my, the, the, the current knowledge in our society ends. And I hope maybe some kind, sometime in the future we can respond to that question. But yeah. I see it incredibly impossible. And there will always be a further, what, what about this? If you say, okay, the Earth was generated by the collision of asteroids. Okay, but what were those asteroids produced of? Okay, these other these other planets, and what, and and those are, those planets were created by a galaxy. And then the galaxy, where did that galaxy come from? From a big bang. Okay, and where did the big bang come from? We don't know. And whatever you put there, let's say there's a super big bang, which created smaller big bangs. And you, you could say, okay, what created the super big bang? There's always something in the end of the hierarchy of things that created other things, which you cannot say why. Yeah. And we've seen that in, in science throughout the years, haven't we? You know, it used to be that the 
the the uh, the proton was the smallest particle. Then they brought the cork out, and and we're continuing to look into things. And as you said, the questions we ask are bigger and bigger. Uh, but as you said, I think it would be something that we could discuss on a future show. We'll definitely have you back on as a guest. Where can people find you if they need to? I have a Instagram account in which I post some some clips of the of the episode of the podcast. I also publish some some interesting quotes. I've been lately publishing. I have a huge list of quotes I find fascinating, and I've been publishing a lot of those on a on a highlight highlighted uh, highlight stories that they have there in my profile. Uh, yeah, I do not publish anything personal. I only publish things related to my intellectual journey. Apart from that, people can see my my YouTube channel at Alex Buxeda, and then my podcast Escaping Mediocrity. Uh, that's those are the three main ways in which people can see my things. And if they are willing to contact me, I have my they can send me a an email that is located at the about about uh, side of the YouTube channel. Yeah, well, we'll we'll put some notes in in the description of of the episode anyway. Um, but I think you should write a book if you ever get around to it or you've got time. I think it would be uh, interesting and I think you'd pose a lot of questions for people because you think in a um, in quite a lo- logical and matter-of-fact way. But that, I think that comes back to your, your views on scientific methods and can we demonstrate that this works based on history based on the the maths and does it make sense based on those things alone and what are the impacts on all the other stakeholders and variables within that equation so so yeah it's been a really interesting chat we're going to have you on again we'll maybe discuss some of those deeper questions in terms of why we're here and, and things like that um but yeah get in touch with alex on those parts mentioned um and yeah thanks again for being on the show i I, I, thanks for the recommendation of writing a book. I've actually started re- writing one. Have you? It will, be called, it will be called The Origin of All Vices and Virtues. I, it's going super slow. I I find it troubling to get the motivation to keep writing, but it's slowly but surely going. And I think maybe by the time I'm 30, I will finish it. But there will be some time in which I will publish a book called The Origin of All Vices and Virtues. And it will merge the sociological, psychological, biological, all those levels of analysis will be merged in my opinion not absolutely not everything among those will be merged in that book but there will be a union which will allow people to understand why people fall for the short-term gratification instead of the long-term benefit my thesis is that that the tangibility of the cost and the benefits is what determines what ends up being done and i'm writing about that the whole the whole marshmallow experiment yeah, kind of. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, yeah, I'm writing a book, a second book as well at the minute. It's about uh, questions, asking yourself questions, because I know that you're a questions guy as well. So it's for people who want to sort of, who don't really ask themselves questions, who just trigger through life to say, okay, well, where do I want to be in three to five years? Actually have a think, what do I want out of life? And then they make a plan to get there. You know, what traits do I like from my parents that I've adopted or what traits don't I like from my parents that I've adopted? How can I change that? So questions like that that really help people to improve. Maybe not deep questions like, well, who created the universe? Because I think that's maybe something that might come in the future. Um, but this is more of a get people motivated and, and, and improve themselves. But it is actually quite hard to write a book. It, 
as you said, it's about putting time aside. How much time do you spend a day? Do you do a whole day on it and be really absorbed or do you do a little bit every day? And I think it depends on you as an individual. Your what You know, as you said about scientific methods, how much time do I have available? How well do I focus? Um, what distractions do I have in my life, et cetera, et cetera, and prioritising that. But I think it'll be... It will, it will do well for your book, definitely. And if you're not... Let me, please, let me please finish by sharing an intuition I had during our conversation, which I think if I'm not going to be to sound extremely pretentious by saying it, I will exp try to explain it. I think there I, I had an intuition which, while explaining the hierarchy of, of knowledge uh, from mathematics to sociology, I had the intuition that the reason why we see free will as an illusion is that our perspective, our consciousness only exists at the level of sociology. We are not conscious at the level of quarks, we're conscious at the level of humans interacting with other humans. And that doesn't allow us to see every, every layer at the same level of resolution, which is the thing driving our relative ignorance of the different levels of analysis. So it's like the, the there's a, a pyramid and at the top there's an eye, and that's where we are seeing the, the whole universe out from. And we do not understand the cause, the causal correlates leading to actions in the universe completely. We we do in certain other aspects. That why that's why if someone has a, a psychopathology, we think that that person is less responsible for what he did than if than if he didn't have that psychopathology. But that's actually wrong because we, if we understood the causal correlates in the universe at a deep enough level, any action would be analogous to having that psychopathology. Something led to you being in this condition. And once you understand that, it would be analogous to, okay, you you are sick and you acted in a sick manner. That's perfectly understandable. And the reason why that illusion emerges is that we only see from one side. If we saw from the bottom, which is impossible, because I, I do not know if quarks are conscious at the level of humans, this might be completely bullshit. And I'm entirely <laughs> open to this to this possibility. But but I was just having this realization and I just wanted to to put it out there while before I forget it. But I think a good, a good analogy would be like a, an aeroplane traveling over New York City. They see the, the, the grid system, they see Central Park, they see the buildings. But then to see the street level, we have to walk around or no, we have to drive around, sorry, to see how things are. But then to actually get to know the area properly, we actually have to walk around and see the little detail. So... What you're saying is that we see things from the aeroplane view and we can't see it at the quark level of walking around the in, the insides, which I sort of appreciate. But the question I would then pose, and maybe we'll leave on this, is maybe we, 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 we can't look at the internal, but can we go up levels? Can we, through meditation or, as you said, intuitions, can we get in touch with something internally to rise up a level even from the aeroplane up to the Concorde, the rocket, um, and get insights that maybe we wouldn't get otherwise. Yeah, and that's understanding that there's threads of logic which transcends your the aspect of knowledge in which you are the most proficient, and that's consilience. Excellent. Well, we'll leave on that. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, Jovan. Yeah, absolutely.